Well, let me shift gears a little bit. I mean, you've had more experience than anybody I know of with uh, trying to protest the race to nuclear war over these years. But if I'm going to say, it was not because anyone actually wanted a nuclear war, other than, and I don't say this as a joke, uh, General Curtis LeMay, I think, did want it as earlier than later because it was going to be harder later. But in the earlier years, he had a few acolytes, but really almost nobody else. And uh, nobody now, I'll bet there's nobody now who wants a two-sided nuclear war. Let me rephrase. The drift towards nuclear war, whether you want it or not. What do you get from this experience about the ways to proceed that are effective, those that aren't effective, in trying to arrest the drift that is inexorable? It's just going to keep going one step after another up the escalation ladder. So China is going to react in some way, I presume, to the Alka Steel nuclear submarines off its shores, to the station of B-52s permanently in Darwin, Guam, maybe expanding in the Philippines, to the economic war. Uh, how do you stop? What are the what are the best ways to proceed to try to prevent this continual step towards what could turn out well to be a determined nuclear war? While the conception in planning circles is, well, we can keep calibrating it, keep gaining step by step, degrading Russia, undermining China, moving forward, more provocations, uh, but somehow we can keep it under control. What is the way to get people to understand this? Let me just bring one fact into this, which is shattering in my opinion. Uh, the, I think maybe I've mentioned this, the Pew polling centers just did a study of uh, a couple weeks ago of the uh, issues that uh, Americans find urgent worth, how do they rank a couple dozen issues in terms of urgency? They didn't even ask about nuclear weapons. It's considered so low a priority that they don't even raise the question. As I think you know, Noam, we've discussed this. I don't know the answer to that question. I would say that the things we've done, and you you know, you were, when it comes to and a standing to oppose these things. You've been at that much longer, and you've done it all over the world. And um, you uh, gave me the understanding that I've worked with for the last half century and more. Um, no one has influenced my thinking, my understanding of the world. No one more than you. As I've, I've told you before, there's been others that uh, are definitely have been my teachers over the years. Uh, Doug Dowd, Peter Dale Scott, uh, Tom Reifer, my former student, you know, who's been my mentor now for the last 20 years, 20 years before that. And, um, but you above all, and I was just looking at this book because I thought there was a quote in it, I just a few minutes ago, 
American Power and the New Mandarins. I'm going to have to, in my remaining time here, this is one of the books I want to reread because I just started looking for it for a, what I thought was a particular quote, which turns out to be a theme uh, in the book, which runs all through it. And it, the, the phrase that I was looking for that I remembered was, our leaders act and our people act. It's unquestioned, it's unchallenged, as if we had a right to determine the institution, governing powers, the, the, the police. It's, it's an imperial attitude. I mean, that wasn't a word that you emphasize. But uh, the fact that we acted, if we had the right to intervene, to invade, occupy, to threaten, all these things. I came back in 67. I just looked at when this book came out. Uh, this is a later copy. Uh, and it was in 67 and 69. I don't think I read it as soon as I got back. Uh, but I read that and he said, right? Right? Question of right to do this? I'd been in the government a dozen years by that time, including the Marines. I'd never heard any mention, anyone mention that uh, consideration. Have a right? Could it be that we don't have a right to some things? Well, it's not as though people claimed they had a right. This question just didn't arise. As you pointed out, they act as if they do. And that's not only the leaders. That goes, as you say, unchallenged, not only by the elites, uh, but by the people, pretty much. Really, when I was reading this, uh, my first reaction was the old one, uh, when I learned what was going on in Vietnam, with two years there, visiting uh, 46, 38 of the 43 provinces. I came back in the 60s, having been all over Vietnam. And um, uh, for example, that uh, the public did not understand that this was a, an editing stalemate. It was clearly stalemate. Well, one reason they did that LBJ had explicitly in writing, that is the White House, forbidden the use of the word stalemate. It was taboo, uh, progress, progress, you know, and so forth, no stalemate. So my message was for an insider to other people, like Assistant Secretaries of State, like uh, Robert McNamara himself, Secretary of Defense, which, who agreed with me, by the way. In fact, they pretty much all agreed with me, but they didn't say it. We are stalemated in 67. And actually the Tet Offensive didn't change that so much. Uh, it, it never changed until the end, pretty much. Okay, relevant to right now, of course. Of course, it's a stalemate there now, as as European World War One was in 1916. I've just read a very interesting book. Uh, you've probably read it or, or not, by Philip uh, Zelikov, uh, called the, the Road Less Traveled, I think it's called, about the... the the, the fact that the leaders with Woodrow Wilson, Bateman Holbeck in Germany, the French, the British, all understood that the war then was stalemated, you know, a, a trench line from uh, one side of Europe to the other, hardly moved at all, but for negotiation. And, and they reconsidered it, and then they were over. I said, no, one more offensive uh, right now. I know negotiate because each side believes that it will make some progress with another offensive. Now, I believe, as in Europe, they will find they will fail on both of those, or we'll see. I don't think it'll be any decisive thing, 
Will there be another chance then, after they failed in the spring, to negotiate in the way that, is, as you know, uh, Zelensky was ready to negotiate a year ago in April? Hardly anybody knows this. The mainstream press never refers to it. Yes, uh, both uh, Putin and Zelensky were, had their representatives in Iran, I think, uh, not Iran, but Istanbul, and uh, under Turkish auspices, and had an agreement with Boris Johnson flying over from England to say, we do not agree to concessions at this point, to compromises, to a ceasefire. The war must go on. And then he quoted, he says, U.S. agrees with me. The U.S. confirmed that. Now, whatever the uh, complexities and the uh, complicity on both sides that got us into this situation, uh, there were delusions on, on both sides. Obviously, uh, obviously, Putin had the delusion that this is going to be cakewalk used to hear about Iraq remember that remember that word Iraq was going to be a cakewalk the Gulf War, Gulf War was going to be... Putin obviously thought he he had to walk here and he was wrong he wasn't wrong alone every everybody got delusion this is what's going to happen they go over quickly and uh and we'll get the U.S. will get most of the benefits I've spoken up. Arms sales will go up big. NATO will go up big. This is not an unwelcome thought, I think, to American leaders. But they weren't looking at a war like this because no one was. Who in the world predicted a year ago that this is where we'd be now with 100,000 losses on both sides? I think no one expected that. So delusions go into it. But as in World War I, the delusions are shown wrong within a month or two. You know, the trench lines developed in Europe, the machine gun showed what it could do, et cetera, et cetera. Putin even knew within a month that his delusion, widely shared, was wrong. At that point, for the U.S. to discourage compromise, negotiation, discussions, to avoid where we are now with a risk of nuclear war looking at us was a historic war crime, a crime against humanity. It was, and I'm not letting Putin off the hook here either, but, uh, apparently had some will facing the reality to draw back to pre-24th positions, which I don't think the cards anymore. After the 100,000 each side, what leader side is going to say oh mistake uh, true you know we made a mistake i'm terribly sorry i'm calling this off nobody has ever done that and i don't think it's going to be very hard but are the is the public demanding it so i i thought in 67 if the czar only knew how stalemated we were if lbj knew and what i found is he did know and he'd known all along. So that wasn't good enough. So I thought, well, maybe if I inform the public that the executive branch has always known, not that the war could not be won. The Joint Chiefs always said stupidly that it could be won. And the Pentagon Papers are full of that. They were always saying, let's escalate. If you just do what we want, like in the current case, Invade Crimea, sure, we can go in the Donbass. Uh, and I don't know what they're hearing on the Russian side, you know, Kiev, whatnot. But 
they kept, so they were all saying it could be one, but not at what the president was willing to do. What the president chose consciously was an escalating stalemate, which would postpone and avert his ever having to say, we're out, we're lost at stake, it was wrong. Well, right now, what I found then, telling didn't do the job. A lot of them knew it, but they wouldn't say it. They were afraid of being called names, as is happening now with anybody who describes negotiation. Uh, they're being called appeasers, Munich, weak, uh, weak on aggression, and there is aggression here. Uh, weak on it, uh, uh, you know, we're awarding the aggressor and all that. Well, words like that, you're weak on communism, you're weak on, we don't have communists anymore, but we have Russia back. And, and they've always wanted China back when it built up enough to be a, a real threat. Because uh, we need a threat, uh, indispensable threat, enemy. So the problem is, though, a, a, another part of the problem is if the people only knew. And uh, here's where I've had an unease about some of the things that uh, even you have said, Noam, I've, continuously I've said this, that the people don't want to, to do this. They don't want tyranny. They don't want torture. They don't want aggression. They don't want invasion. And that's true. They don't want it. But they're easily persuaded that it's the right thing to do. Humans, I have to say, not just Americans, are so suggestible that their leaders with enormous phones, and as you've described in the power of Canada, with the, with the media, Congress putting it out, a bought, bought by the oil companies, bought by the arms industries, this need, enemies. Humans, I think, are have a flaw here. They're not necessarily aggressive by nature, but they can easily be persuaded that they are in danger from these other people, quote, other, not like us, different language, different culture different they are enemies they threaten they're apprehensive we have to go kill them and so uh that is a problem in human nature and it makes it very hard to uh to to avert the demagogues who profit from this enemy concept and the and the and the war concept it is in their interest to fool people and it's not that hard to do. Now, you've been at this, as I say, much longer than me. What do you conclude? Everything was tried, but it hasn't worked yet. More of the same, something new. I, I'm asking you. I wouldn't exactly say it hasn't worked. It's had its effects. I mean, as you pointed out, the uh, although the anti-war movement in the 60s was way too late. It did get to the point where it may very well have prevented Nixon from using nuclear weapons. That's not a yeah. small achievement. No, no, definitely. As an insider, I can say it definitely kept a ceiling on the violence, which could have been far greater if the president had done what the Joint Chiefs wanted him to do and recommended. And a major reason why he didn't do that was the understanding of the anti-war movement, the pressure of the anti-war movement. That was very important. That saved millions of lives. It didn't end the war, but it saved millions of lives. And then it continues. Well, you get to the 1980s, 
looked in 1981 or so as if Reagan was, or his advisors were trying to pretty much duplicate what Kennedy had done 20 years earlier. You know, white paper about the communists taking over the world, we got to go to war in Central America and so on. Well, there was so much, in the 60s, nothing happened. Nobody paid any attention. In the 80s, there was such an outburst of protest from popular groups, church groups, others, they had to back off. It was horrible enough what they did in Central America, but it wasn't Vietnam. And uh, you go to the war invasion of Iraq, first time in history that uh, there's been a huge protest against the war before it was officially launched. Well, I think it probably put some constraints on what they were able to do. It was, again, horrible enough, could have been worse. Uh, let's take a look right now, just to add to the cheery aspect of all of this. Let's take the Middle East. Uh, January, yes, last month, the United States and Israel carried out their largest joint military exercises ever planning for an attack on Iran. Uh, the US ambassador to Israel informed them that you can do whatever you like, we'll have your back. Are they planning for a war against Iran? Well, suppose they do. Uh, Iran, it's kind of like Russia. I Iran doesn't have nuclear weapons, but they can react. They can send missiles to destroy the major energy sources of the world in Northeast South Saudi Arabia. It's well within their reach of their missiles. They've already demonstrated that they could do it. Uh, where do we go from there? I mean, all of these things are building up. Nobody talks about it, just as in the early 60s, no one was talking about the buildup in Vietnam. It's as if these guys are planning to, and you can understand the rationale. I mean, this concern now that the war, that the world may move to a more multipolar structure. The US allies in uh, the Middle East, like Saudi Arabia, you and United Arab Emirates, they're drifting away. They're beginning to make moves towards accommodation, not only with Iran, but with China. UAE is the major hub for the Chinese maritime Silk Road. The US is kind of losing its control. Well, one way to bring them all back together, like getting Europe into Washington's pocket is let's go to war against Iran. Then they'll all join together. And if Iran reacts, they'll be attacked. You know, we'll have them under control. I mean, it seems that this kind of thinking is pervasive, doesn't stop. Uh, and the failure to mobilize against it in the mobilization was too late, should be planning in advance, saying, look what's going on. Uh, I have to do something about it. Now you have people who are like, uh, there was a report about the uh, military, uh, the military, um, joint military exercises in intercept, but it has to be amplified have to bring to people, this is what your elected representatives are planning. They're planning to 
calibrate the war in Europe so it'll be a stalemate and we'll get a bargain, degrade Russia while we move to attack China, build up the war, the, the uh, provocation escalation in China that we've been discussing, and maybe we'll keep it under control. Uh, let Israel support Israel. We have to provide the refueling and so on and so forth for a bombing of Iran. Maybe that'll blow up and bring the Arab states back into our control once again, instead of drifting towards multipolarity. I mean, this planning is constantly going on. We react, but too late. Have to find ways to get there in time. So how to do it in time? I mean, all we can do is try to escalate our efforts to take arms against the sea of troubles, to pick a famous phrase, and maybe you can even overcome them. What else can you do? You're certainly not talking to somebody now who is trying to tell people, stop acting, try, don't take any risks. The difficulties are greater than I understood uh, 50 years ago. And in part because not all the people, even when they know we're moving toward war, are against that. I'm sorry to say, it seems easy to persuade them that uh, this is inevitable, it's necessary, uh, it's what we have to do. It's easy to fool them. Look, we and that doesn't mean it's impossible to change. Let me go back to the positive side, as you said, which I agree with. I said the anti-war movement, starting with, with me, with you to a large extent, with what I learned from you and Howard's and, and others, um, was um, did keep a lid on the war. And I think in 1969, there's a movie about this coming out on March 28th, actually, The uh, Madman and the, something like that, The Madman and the Bomb, I've forgotten the uh, exact title, Steve Ladd and others are producing this, it's going to come out on PBS, very, about the moratorium was really a general strike during a work day, weekday, when people took off from work, took off from school to protest the war, two million people. Uh, it was a general strike, but they didn't want to call it sounded too radical, too provocative. So they, they call it Torium, bringing a visit. Didn't know, I didn't know at that time, copying the Pentagon Papers, that Nixon was planning to escalate the war, including nuclear threats in nuclear war, on November 3rd. And this two million people on October 15th showed him he would have Ten times that many if he did what he was preparing to do, and he didn't do it, the escalation. So it, it carried out an enormous, you know, it stopped an enormous escalation. And I'll tell you another, now on Vietnam, it didn't stop the war. The war went on. The Pentagon Papers did not stop the war, did not stop Nixon's planning at all. Uh, the biggest bombing of the war and the offensive took place a year after the Pentagon Papers. And Nixon was elected then, end of that year, 72, in a landslide. It's a year and a half after the Pentagon Papers, which didn't, however, point at Nixon, unfortunately. They ended in 68. Speak of miracles that are possible. We, I always cite the ending of the Berlin Wall, the uh, Mandela becoming President of South Africa without a revolution. Impossible, impossible uh, years beforehand to imagine this low likelihood 
but impossible. And yet they did happen. We add one that I know better than most people inside. I know Nixon was planning to renew of Vietnam as soon as American troops were out, ground troops were out, in the spring of 1973. The Paris Agreement was not meant in Nixon's eyes to end the war. It was meant to uh, get the U.S. troops out and carry it on by U.S. air power in support of, uh, in support of Arvin troops, which we were totally financing, totally equipping and training, everything else. Like Afghanistan, where the, where are the, the role of our ground troops after a few years came down to involve almost no casualties. How long could you carry on a war like that? Well, we learned in Afghanistan, 20 years. And Nixon wasn't forced out by an anti-war movement out of that. Uh, he, he was against that war when he was in vice president. He wanted to be lowered anyway. He was determined to get it out in the worst way, as they used to say. And that's how he did it, in the worst way. But he got out and uh, 20 years. Well, that's what Nixon had in mind for Vietnam. Hardly anybody understands that or believes me when I say it. There are, it, it can't be absolutely proved, by the way, but that's a long story, right? There's a lot of evidence for it. How did war end? And in January of 73, the second degree of my trial was being sworn in. It was a break in a trial. A new jury. It's, the trial started in 71. And then in 73, uh, we're starting basically a new trial. And who would have, the war I knew and Mort Halper knew could not be ended by the anti-war movement or anybody else or the Vietnamese no matter what they did with Nixon in office. He just suffered, he, he just suffered, he just experienced a historic landslide, by some accounts, the greatest landslide in history. What was the chance that the Nixon would be out so that the war could be ended before 1977? This is in 1973. Zero, zero, it was not unlikely it was unimaginable that Nixon would be out so that the war could be ended because it wasn't going to end with Nixon in. And the anti-war movement alone could not do it. Well, a whole chain of events took place. Uh, the Nixon's fear that I could document his plans and the threats he was making uh, led him to take crimes against me, which were very unlikely to be found out. Were almost impossible. That president held accountable for them. And then John Dean takes on the president, calls him a liar, uh, and that the crimes he'd been doing, it, very hard to get this thing off, it appears. That's how World War III will start in the end, by the way, with a digital screw-up of some kind. It's happened in 1979, 1980, 1995 for Russia. A... Uh, mistaken message. Anyway, if Alex Budfield had not revealed the taping in the Oval Office confirmed what John Dean had said, Nixon would have remained. It was unthinkable that Alex Butterfield in that Oval Office for many years, taking down notes and everything, would be the one that, it was only a handful of people who were to know that that taping was there. John Ehrlichman, for example, was not one of them. Haldeman did know. Kissinger did not know. 
But Butterfield knew, and the idea that Butterfield would reveal that could be, you know, was not worth thinking about. He chose to do that, tell the truth about the taping. Without that, Dean was nowhere. He had no documents to prove it. That was essential. Without Supreme Court justices that Nixon had appointed, being willing to say he had to turn over the tapes. You know, and Alex Cox saying, I have to have the tapes. Elliot Richardson saying, I resign rather than, than, uh, than, than fire Alexander Cox, his Harvard Law School teacher. Ruckel's house being the second in command brought in there. I won't do it either. And uh, it comes back to Bork, who was willing to do it. Uh, but even so, the tapes got out, et cetera, et cetera. So Patricia and I, Tony Russo, uh, Linda Resnick, who had helped the Xeroxing, Randy Keeler, who was the person who went to prison and who, uh, whose example was cruel to me in saying, what can I do to help end the war? I'm ready to go to prison like him. None of those people, including me, had any reason to think there was any chance, or much chance, much chance of shortening the war. But they did what they could, and each one of us, each one of them, was a link in a chain of events that, here's the point I'm making, that led to an actually unforeseeable event of making the war endable nine months after Nixon left office for the first resignation in our history. So I'm saying you push on every door as you've been doing for much more than half a century. You don't know which one will open or make any difference, but it is not impossible that you will make a difference. And the, and the, the, uh, the Pentagon Papers happen to be a proof of that. It was not just the Pentagon Papers, but the fact that I had copied other papers on Nixon that scared him into taking people to incapacitate me totally to go into my former psychoanalyst office to get information to coerce me, to blackmail me into silence, and that that should become known. And so all of these things were unforeseeable, but all of us were doing what we could. Uh, you, as I said the other day, you and Howard Zinn and Dick Falk, another teacher of mine, uh, had copies of the Pentagon Papers before they came out. Uh, did that end the war? No, but I thought to know you above all should know, not surprising to you, and made a difference until things uh, came in. So, no, you were a, a big part of that, definitely. And as I said, you're the one who put the idea in my head. We don't have a right to be doing this, and we don't have a right to make nuclear threats. No one does. Putin does not. No, Kennedy did not. Khrushchev did not in 1962. They all talk about, oh, this person was provoked into doing this, and he had no choice, and, you know, inevitable, and so forth. Yes, that's the way they told everybody, the way people accepted. Bullshit. They were making choices that were insane, insane risks. And that's what's happening right now. And if you ask me, could people think uh, that a war could be contained in China? Well, I have to say, yeah, our experience shows that. Putin uh, thought a war could be contained in Ukraine. It hasn't done so well. It's still contained. As you say, 
it could always have been worse. And indeed, the public attitude about nuclear weapons has been a major factor in the fact threats have not been carried out. Everything is at stake. Can it be each of us, Randy Keeler, you, uh, going to Hanoi and reporting back about the bombing, uh, all the others, we're taking the chance of imprisonment, so for a, ch a chance that almost no official uh, made, no matter how much, how skeptical and cynical they were about the chances of any progress, but they didn't reveal that outside the system because they might have lost access. They would have lost access. They would have lost their jobs, their clearances, their career, and maybe their marriages. These are not minor, minor problems. Is it worth doing that and demonstrating in civil disobedience for a small chance that you'll have any influence and that that influence, the small chance, will change the course of events? And the answer is, of course it's worth it. Of course, everything is at stake, everything. Look out, you know, at the leaves, the trees, everything. Uh, your family, the, the babies, everything. Of course it's worth it. And like you who have been doing this most of your life, does deserve admiration, gratitude, and you have gotten Chomsky. Noam, last word, Noam. What you've been doing is a real inspiration. Should help us all stand up for what has to be done, no matter what the difficulties and move on to overcome threats that could destroy us, but that we can control and overcome with enough effort and commitment. I think you've shown that in a way that is truly incomparable. Thank you, Noam, and, and Paul, for giving me a chance to say that to Noam. I've wanted to for so long. I, I think the way things go, I've said it as clearly, but uh, Noam, you are my hero and my mentor. And so glad you're my friend. It's been wonderful for both all of us. It still is and will be. Thank you, gentlemen. You, you are both an inspiration for us. Thank you for joining us on the analysis.news.